Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California, which is just outside of Santa Barbara. Today, I want to start out again, uh, as I always do, remind you that there is an abundance of information at the website called wealthformula.com which houses the podcast Wealth Formula. And um, you should go check it out. You're, uh, you're listening to this and there's an opportunity to get more involved, of course, uh, by going to the website and downloading resources and books and that sort of thing. But also, remember, we have a group called Wealth Formula Network, which is very popular with sort of the, uh, the, the more involved individuals in our community. This is a community of people just like you who uh, are interested in um, digging deeper into personal finance in the alternative way that we do, but don't necessarily have the community around them to connect with and to talk to about this. For example, your wife or your neighbor, uh, you know, your friends may not like talking about investing in real estate and understanding what value there is maybe in cash value, life insurance or a leveraged IUL, all these kinds of things where they'll be like, yeah, whatever. That's not, uh, not interesting at all. For me, it's very interesting. And for people in Wealth Formula Network, well, we geek out on this stuff as well. So if you're interested in taking it to a, the next level, consider joining our group. And it is also not only a group, but it's a course. It starts out with a course with uh, the likes of uh, Ken McElroy and Tom Wheelwright and all these really, really smart people to teach you the fundamentals of personal finance uh, the way we do it. And, uh, and then sort of moves into this uh, community, which is a, a online community at, uh, with a Facebook group. But then we do these bi-weekly uh, calls and they're not just calls they're video zoom we're zooming we're doing zoom meetings we were way ahead of the covid uh, thing on this we were doing these uh, zoom meetings bi-weekly for uh, a long time anyway if this sounds interesting to you we'd love to have you join us uh, go to wealthformularoadmap.com to check out mostly that information is about the course um, but the value that people really get is, you know, the courses sort of creates this, the fundamentals, and then you have to go in and really live it. And that's through Wealth Formula Network. So go to wealthformularoadmap.com. 
Now, uh, as far as today, the theme of the show, in my opinion, uh, would be the old saying that when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, where do we live today? We live in a crazy economic environment, right? Money printing, uh, uh, you know, Fed buying you know, Fed buying all of these um, bonds, um, you know, government spending, uh, you know, so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, you know, there's an entire sort of line of thinking, the Austrian economists who are very, um, and I'm not saying I have anything, any problem with the Austrian economists. I would say that I think what they say makes a lot of sense. I mean, the likes of, you know, Peter Schiff, et cetera, who talk about sort of sound money and that sort of thing. That makes absolute sense to me. And, but from that uh, school of thought, they would say, they would tell us to stop printing money now and to keep uh, the Fed out of the bond market, stop the government spending. The problem is that if we did that, we would go into a depression, and no one denies that, not even the Austrians. The disagreement that there is, is whether or not for the long term, for the sound, for a sound economy for the next, you know, 100 years, what is the right thing to do? Is it the right thing to do just to deal with the pain now um, and, uh, and come out the other side a lot stronger? That's what the Austrians would say, whereas everybody else who are pretty much you know, dominated by Keynesian uh, school of thought, I would say, uh, at this point, uh, you know, would, would, would disagree with that, right? Um, now, the bad news for the Austrian uh, economics people is that they are grossly outnumbered, okay? Because we do not live in a gold-backed world. We don't live in that world. That's the problem. It's not whether you like it or not. We just don't live there, right? We live in Rome. We live in a Keynesian wet dream. Yes, I said that. With essentially limitless money printing and government spending, right? So for now, for now, it's keeping the economy alive. And the reality is we did the same type of stuff back in 2008 and it saved us then as well. And by the way, I should point out, we didn't get the inflation that was predicted by the Austrians and right, frankly, by just about every mainstream economist as well. In fact, what we discovered is if we print a lot of money, we just end up shipping it off to the rest of the world because of our massive trade deficits. Well, that was convenient, right? So this time around, it's very possible we could do the same, same thing. And let me be clear. I am not saying that I think this is the right way to run an economy. I'm not. It's bizarre, right? It's totally bizarre. But my philosophy on this is kind of goes back to the old saying, you know, is when you're in Rome, the Romans do, and there may be a day of reckoning. You know, we're playing a game. We're playing a game that makes no sense at all, but right now it's working, and maybe the only thing we can do, in fact, it is the only thing we can do. What else are we going to do? 
we're going to we're going to ride this wave as long as we can because it's again it's the only thing we can do but in the meantime it's really important in my view probably more so in you know i mean i i mean, listen i live in this generation but i should say more so than and than than in the last you know 20 years or so that i've been you know, an adult to really understand what's going on because it's going to formulate your decisions. And I know, I know people say, yeah, those macro, macro predictions, they're, they're just like throwing a dart. Well, I mean, listen, I truly believe that if you understand uh, and you make decisions, your personal decisions based on, uh, you know, what you think is really happening in the world, uh, then, then, you know, you're at least going to feel better if you're wrong. I'll tell you that much. I, I really believe that you just don't want to be like, uh, you know, completely blindsided by everything. But again, the first step is to try to understand what's going on. Uh, understanding macroeconomics actually gives you a chance in a crazy financial climate like now. And, 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 and as a part of that, you don't want to just listen to, you know, the doomsday people or the Austrians or whatever, because again, you need to understand what it is, the source of information that you're listening to. Anyway, I will tell you that, you know, today uh, I have back on a guy I think is really uh, a really good teacher. And I think he's a smart, smart economist. Um, he's definitely not an Austrian economist. Uh, and he probably does have uh, Keynesian leanings, but I think it's a, on a very more practical basis on what he's actually seeing in the economy. His name is Richard Duncan. You know, he's an economist who has in a video newsletter called MacroWatch that I really enjoy. And it's got some great information in it, and he'll talk about that as well. So when we come back, we'll have uh, Richard Duncan once again trying to make sense of all of this craziness. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, am I guest? Uh, well, he's he's become sort of a uh, a regular, a somewhat uh, regular on the show, as well as some other shows uh, in the uh, podcast arena, like Robert Kiyosaki's uh, Rich Dad Radio. He also also a um, he also has a, a video newsletter, which I have become a big fan of, called Macro Watch, and 
I really do like his approach to macroeconomics. And so please welcome back uh, Richard Duncan. Richard, thanks for joining us back from Thailand, right? Right, Buck. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, how are things over there right now? I mean, are you, are, is there much disease, COVID-19, et cetera, going on in, uh, in your neck of the woods? So in Thailand, there have not been any new locally transmitted cases for something like 35 days now. Wow. The total number of cases is reported to be something like 3,200 in total. And the number of deaths is less than 55. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, one of the things we thought previous, before when I talked to you was maybe it had something to do with the weather, but obviously we've got this big, uh, big uh, spike here in the U.S. and uh, it's, it's coming in the summer months, so that's probably not the reason, um, you know, but, uh, but whatever the case is, they're, they're doing something right there and we're doing something not as right, so. Well, one thing that the Asians have all done right from the beginning is they've all been wearing masks quite right. religiously. And so, yes, I've been too optimistic that the virus would die out when the summer came to the Northern Hemisphere, sadly. Yeah. So I, I can't explain why there have been so few cases in Thailand other than the, poss- the possibility that it's due to a combination. Of, I think the sunny weather certainly doesn't hurt uh, and the humidity. But the mask must perhaps also plays a very important role in reducing the number of cases. And didn't they also have some kind of mass vaccination uh, for the MMR, uh, mumps, measles, and rubella at some point? You, you, know, may- you may be right about that, but that's not something I've ever heard of. I, I'm not aware of anything like that, any yeah. sort of mass, uh, mass vaccination. Which- country it was but um there is uh, there was, was some asian country that had this mass adult vaccination which we don't usually do in the u.s and uh there has been some reports of protection from that at any rate uh listen welcome back um uh, you've been uh, again richard you've been kind enough to update us on this crazy uh covid economy that we've had and every time we talk it's like we haven't talked in three years uh, because of the changes that ensue in the interim. So, um, you know, at the macro level, what's the latest and, you know, how bad is it? So, you're right. We, the last time we spoke, it was four months ago at, at the beginning of March. Mm-hmm. And I just listened to that interview again a couple of hours ago. And boy, has the world changed since then. Uh, luckily the policy response out of the, out of the US government has been remarkably aggressive. And that is limiting, limiting the damage that the virus is doing to the economy and of course to society. So let's, let's review. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's review, yes, let's review. <laughs> so as of, um, at this point. As of today, I think 130,000 Americans have died from the virus. Um, and so when this started exploding, it really was right around the time in the US, it really was right around the time that we spoke in early March. Well, since then, the stock market fell very sharply uh, and the government responded extremely aggressively. Um, on March 15th, I published a macro watch video called Recession or Depression. 
And I argued then that whether or not the U.S. went into only a recession or, or a new Great Depression would depend entirely on the speed and the magnitude of the government's policy response in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus. So fortunately, the government has responded very aggressively. The government uh, has passed rescue bills amounting to something like $3 trillion. And consequently, largely due to that, the government debt this year, year to date, has increased by $3 trillion. And the Fed has created roughly the same amount of money, something $2.8 trillion so far year to date. And so this combination of very aggressive fiscal and monetary stimulus is the reason that we still have an economy that at all resembles the economy we had last year and before. Well, one of the questions I got to ask you, though, is, is it, I mean, that uh, it really, it really isn't reflecting the economy we had next. I mean, maybe the stock market reflects it, right? But underlying this, there's a lot of, I mean, ugly numbers. Isn't that, isn't that fair? Yes. I mean, the second quarter is certainly going to be a disaster. And the third quarter is increasingly looking tough as well. But let's think about what would have occurred without this. Right. The government has been sending people who are unemployed an extra, what is it, $600 a week. Sure. And on top of that, they sent out the checks for $1,200. And in addition, small and medium-sized businesses are being able to borrow money from the government, as well as large corporations. And so without that support, uh, tens of millions of Americans would have defaulted on their mortgages, their rent, their credit cards, their car payments, and, and the the, probably the majority of the small and medium-sized businesses would have failed. And that goes for the large corporations as well at this point. And so that means that all of the banks in the United States would have already collapsed by now. Because, you know, in the, in the rosiest possible scenario, the banks have capital, in theory, of 10%. Well, if that means that if 10% if of their loans default, they lose all of their capital. And, you know, this is being very optimistic about their true capital levels. So we're talking about mass defaults on a scale that we would have, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent defaults. They would have been bankrupted yeah. multiple times, therefore destroying all the savings and all those deposits uh, and entirely destroying our economy. No doubt. But the, the, I guess the question I have is related to the idea that, you know, we have uh, a, a phenomena which I think is really unusual. Um, you know, it, it, there's always been some discord in this uh, in recent years, but probably more now than ever where you have businesses, okay, they're surviving, but they're certainly not thriving. And if you look at the equity markets, what you're seeing is, okay, well, for a while we had, <laughs> it was almost looking like a, a bull market again. It slowed down a little bit, but it certainly has not corrected to the point that might reflect, you know, some of the realities uh, in, 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 in the economy. And presumably that's just a function of the Fed's monetary policy. Um, can you explain sort of what's going on there and, you know, and, and what some of the net effects of that might be? Okay, yes, so um, a, little, a little history. 
In the first 93 years of the Fed's existence between 1914 and 2007, on the eve of the crisis of 2008, in those 93 years, the Fed created in total something around $900 billion. Now, just since this crisis has started in the last, well, this year, year to date, the Fed has created $2.8 trillion. So they, in year to date, they've created three times as much money as they did during the first 93 years of their existence. And that has resulted, since they started QE4 in October last year, the Fed's total assets have expanded by 90% since the 1st of October. So that gives you some idea of the, the scale at which the Fed is creating money and pumping it into the economy, helping to finance the government's gigantic budget deficits, um, which support the stimulus payments. So this money that's being pumped into the economy, the new money being pumped into the economy by the Fed, that is the reason the stock, the stock prices rebound. The stock market hit a low on March 23rd. That's the day when the Fed rolled out what some people call QE infinity, when they started uh, printing, uh, creating limitless amounts of money. Over the next week, that last week of March, the Fed created something like $570 billion in that one week. Now, again, keep put that into perspective by comparing it with the total amount that they created in the first 93 years of $900 billion, $900 billion versus $570 billion in a week. So the Fed has uh, responded just with tremendous firepower, backing up the government's fiscal stimulus programs and rescue programs. And that's, that's the reason, you know, sooner or later, we will recover from this virus. The virus will burn out one way or the other. Either we get a vaccine or else everyone will get it sooner or later and we will have herd immunity. And at that, at that point, when we come through this on the other end, whenever that is, 18 months from now, two years from now, whenever, whether or not we have an economy left is going to depend on how much the government continues to support the economy in the meantime. Once we're through this, then we, there's no reason we can't return to the same sort of economy we had before. Whereas if they don't continue to support the economy uh, on such an extraordinary scale, then the economy that we have on the other side of this virus will look nothing at all like it did when we went into this crisis. It certainly seems like we're um, going to continue down the, the route that we are at uh, on both sides of the aisle politically. It seems like there's certainly the will for that. Um, it's, you know, getting back into this idea of, uh, of printing money, though, um, one thing I want to ask you, and I think a lot of people, you know, who are not economists wonder, you know, conventional wisdom is that if we print a lot of money, uh, that the net result uh, should be inflation. Yet, we didn't really see that much in 2008, despite, you know, multiple rounds of QE. Um, and uh, I always wondered why that was the case. And I heard you on another interview pointing out uh, that, uh, you know, why printing money doesn't necessarily result in, in, in inflation in the U.S., but you described a paradigm where we essentially export our inflation to other countries because of our trade deficit. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think that's a really important concept that sometimes uh, I don't think uh, I don't think most uh, non-economists really think about. Right. Well, conventional wisdom grows out of 
economic orthodoxy that developed in the 19th century and during most of the 20th century. But that orthodoxy is no longer appropriate for the world that we live in today because that orthodoxy was built around the premise, first of all, that gold was money and that the Fed couldn't create money unless it had gold to back up the money that it created. Now, this created a, a set of circumstances uh, that are no longer in existence. For instance, under those circumstances where gold had to be backed by, where money had to be backed by gold, countries had to have balanced trade. They couldn't have very large trade deficits because if a country had a large trade deficit, it would have to pay for that deficit by sending its gold to the country it had the deficit with. And so that would mean that the, the money in the country would contract, the money supply would shrink, and that would throw the economy into a severe recession. People would lose their jobs and they'd stop buying so much. And so it was just impossible for countries to have very large trade deficits. But once the Bretton Woods system broke down uh, in 1971, and even before that, the United States had stopped backing dollars with gold entirely in 1968. The Fed was no longer required to hold any gold to back the dollars that it issued. And so afterwards, um, at first, it, the U.S. was a little bit slow to catch on. But starting in the 1980s, the United States discovered it could run huge trade deficits with other countries. And it didn't have to pay with gold anymore. It could just pay by creating money and printing or creating, selling treasury bonds. So in other words, this time when the U.S. had a big trade deficit with Japan or Germany, it didn't send them gold, it just sent them dollars. And since those countries accumulated dollars, they had to do something with the dollars. And what they did with them was typically buy treasury bonds. So by the mid-1980s, the U.S. Tr trade deficit was 3.5% of GDP. This was entirely unprecedented in history. And it, it corrected after the Plaza Accord, uh, the, the dollar was devalued by 50% against the yen and the mark. And the trade deficit did correct back to practically nothing in 1990. But then China entered the global economy. And by 2006, the, the trade deficit had grown to 6% of GDP. That was uh, $800 billion in that one year alone in 2006. So this changed everything. In the, in, in the past, when trade balanced, that meant that the United States economy and the other countries in the world, they had relatively closed domestic economies that generally worked fairly close to full capacity. So for instance, if, if a government had large budget deficits and the Fed created a lot of money, that would tend to overstimulate the U.S. economy. And pretty soon everyone would have a job and also all of the factories would be working at full industrial capacity. And so with the extra government stimulus, that would lead to upward pressure on wages since we had full employment already. And also it would lead to inflation because the factories simply couldn't produce enough goods to satisfy all the demand that was being created by the government stimulus. And so that led to high rates of inflation, such as we saw in the early 1970s and throughout the 1970s. But once the U.S. started running these enormous trade deficits with the rest of the world, we circumvented those domestic bottlenecks. We no longer had to rely just on the U.S. workforce or U.S. industrial capacity. Suddenly, we could buy from everywhere in the world. 
And we very quickly learned that we could buy things in countries where the workers made five or seven dollars a day instead of $200 a day in Michigan, including benefits. So globalization has been extremely deflationary. And by allowing us to have to produce within a global economy, and the global population is approaching 8 billion people. And out of those 8 billion, 2 billion of them live on less than $3 a day. They would probably count themselves lucky to get a job paying $10 a day. This, is, this, this supply is, of labor is practically infinite. This low cost labor will be around for generations. And so this is putting, this is the reason US wages haven't gone up for decades. And this is the reason why the Fed, and, the, and first of all, why the government has been able to run trillion dollar budget deficits, and the Fed's been able to finance them with creating trillions of dollars without causing any inflation at the consumer price level. So we're living in a completely- Globalization essentially allows us to export our inflation. Well, I wouldn't say export the inflation. I would just say, it's like, think of our economy as a fish, a fishbowl. We're a fish in a fishbowl. Our economy is a fishbowl. Our, our fishbowl has been dropped into the ocean. We're no longer constrained by the, the walls and the boundaries that once contained us. We now have a vast global economy where we can make goods and hire workers who are on for less than $10 a day. So we're not so much sending other countries our inflation as we're just buying from them and Im importing deflation. The, the uh, other uh, interesting aspect of that, in my view, is the, the global trend toward deglobalization and the implications of that. True. So... So right now we have been able to, for example, compare 1930 and the depression of the 1930s with 2008 and what happened afterwards. In, in, 19, in the early 1930s, dollars had to be backed by gold and everyone was believed in economic orthodoxy and that balanced budgets and that sort of thing. So the government really didn't do very much and, the econ and all the credit that had been created during the roaring 20s, people began to default on that and the, they were just stuck. The banks failed, a third of the banks failed, destroying people's deposits and life savings. The economy went into a, a depression. It never recovered from that depression through any sort of natural market forces. It only recovered when the government undertook uh, in, incredibly large budget deficits to finance and fight World War II. During the, during the four years of World War II, the US government debt expanded five times and the Fed's holdings of US government securities expanded 11 times. So that ended the de depression, not any sort of return to market forces or laissez-faire. Now compare that with what happened in 2008. We had an enormous credit bubble. It started to pop. The private sector couldn't repay their debt they started defaulting, but this time, rather than allowing them all to default and allowing all the banks to fail, the government jumped in with trillion dollar budget deficits and the Fed was free to create as much money as it wanted and finance those deficits by buying government bonds and therefore keeping the interest rates at extremely low levels. And consequently, we didn't collapse into a Great Depression. We had a 12 year expansion of the economy that was the longest in history. 
And that brings us up to the present. Now, suddenly we've been hit by the coronavirus crisis and they are following the 2008 playbook, but even more aggressively. As I've mentioned, $3 trillion of new government debt so far this year, and almost, almost that much money created by the Fed so far this year. Yeah, and then and, the, the multiple rounds of QE, uh, and, uh, and then now, I guess, some discussion about this concept of yield, yield curve control, right? Um, well, first you were asking about the rollback of globalization, though. Yeah. So that's the real risk because it worked in 2008, all of this money creation and fiscal stimulus because it didn't cause any inflation because we had globalization. Yeah. But now globalization is uh, at risk. Even before the crisis started, we had the trade war going with China, which was quite serious even before the crisis. And looking ahead, it's going to probably become worse. Now, but is globalization going to be rolled back completely? Probably not. You know, even, if we, even if we do much less business with China going forward, it's still a very big world. Right. Vietnam has something approaching 90 million people, 80, 90 million people. Indonesia, far more than that. Uh, Bangladesh, India, there's still a very large world full of l low wage workers that US companies could tap into in order to continue manufacturing their goods at very low prices. So yes, I mean, we do need to roll back globalization to some extent. This has been a real lesson for us in the coronavirus showing that we were, the United States was not even capable to produce a sufficient number of surgical masks or ventilators or medicines uh, domestically in the United States, leaving us very vulnerable. Just imagine if we were suddenly attacked by some foreign power, we may not be able to produce the weapons we need to fight the war. So yes, we should do, we should really very carefully rethink what is manufactured in the US and what we import from abroad. But still at the end of the day, uh, we're still going to have a great extent of globalization. Now, if you look at a spectrum of a range between no change in globalization and the complete end of globalization, so taking it from zero to 100%, we may roll this back to 90% from where we are now or where we were a couple of years ago, but we're still going to have a big extent of globalization. The less globalization we have, the more inflation we will have. If we have inflation, then we're going to be back in the environment we were in the 1960s and 1970s, where the government won't be able to have large budget deficits and the Fed won't be able to create a great deal of money without causing consumer price inflation. And if there's a lot of consumer price inflation, that's very bad for the economy and for the stock market, because when inflation goes up, then interest rates will go up as well. And if interest rates go up, of course, it's bad for the housing market, it's bad for the property market, it's bad for gold, uh, because people can put money on deposit in the bank and earn a good return without, uh, whereas if they hold gold, they don't necessarily, they don't earn any yield on gold. Right. So in any case, um, it is going to be a very important question for everyone as to how much globalization is rolled back. But I think at the end of the day, what we're going to be find is that it's not going to be rolled back all that much and that all of the money creation that has occurred so far and that is going to continue to occur, hopefully, over the rest of this year and into next year, we may find, say, 18 months from now, that we still don't have any inflation, despite this extraordinary expansion of money creation by the Fed. 
And if we find that we still don't have any inflation, even after that, then there are very important lessons we need to learn from this whole experience. You can really think of what is occurring now as perhaps the greatest economic experiment in history. Never before, certainly not in peacetime, has there been such an extraordinary expansion of government debt and, and the central bank's balance sheets. Well, if we get through this with no inflation, then what does that mean? What should we learn from that? Well, what, it, what I think we should learn from that is that we are indeed now living in a very different economic environment, that the economic orthodoxy of the, of the past is no longer appropriate for the environment in which we're living. The economic orthodoxy, which taught that budget deficits are bad and central bank money printing is bad, uh, will have to be considered, will have to be reconsidered, start to finish. In other words, I believe what we will probably find out a year and a half from now or two years from now is that we're not going to have very much inflation. Yeah. And therefore, you know, if we can, so, so far the government debt has expanded by $3 trillion. As you said, the Congress is likely to pass more rescue bills pretty soon. And the government debt will probably end up expanding by at least $6 trillion and maybe $10 trillion before this, this thing is over. And the Fed's balance sheet is likely to expand, could, it could expand almost as much as the government debt. So if we find out that the government can increase its debt by $6 trillion to $10 trillion over a two-year period, then, and the Fed finances that with a similar amount of money creation, and we still don't have inflation, then I think the thing we should learn from that is that we are in an environment now that would enable the U.S. government to borrow and invest in new industries and new technologies on a very aggressive scale without and having the Fed pay for that investment without having to fear inflation, giving us the opportunity to induce a new technological revolution that would supercharge the U.S. economy, vastly expand productivity, and create technological miracles and medical marvels and secure U.S. national security for generations to come. You know, and it's, so I've heard what I'd like to see is this. the government invest $10 trillion over the next 10 years in the industries of the future. I've heard you Our talk about this before. And um, before the COVID, uh, before this, uh, you know, this current COVID era that we're in, I always said, well, gosh, that would be interesting, but there would never be any political will for that. Um, that that I think is, is changed. I think that, that there very well may be, especially if there's a, a really sluggish recovery from this, there could, um, and there's a, you know, a, a different uh, administration that, that, that very well seems within the realm of possibility to me. At this well, point. it's changing very quickly. Yes. They say there are moves in Washington to advance this sort of agenda now. And uh, also Charles Schumer, even before this crisis started back in December, he had advocated in front of um, the, the defense community at a speech in Washington in December, November, December, that he said he was going to propose a bill for the United States to invest $100 billion over the next five years in artificial intelligence and genetic engineering and robotics, neurosciences, the industries of the future, in order to secure our national security against the rising threat of China dominating the future. Now, China has been the first to develop 5G and their, their government is investing very aggressively in new technologies and new industries. 
if they win the AI race, the way that they have won the 5G race, then they, they control the future. We will be a vulnerable second rate has been power 15 years from now if China gets AI before we do. And it's very possible that they will because they've overtaken the United States in their research and development investment last year. And if the current rate of growth continues for both countries, by the end of this decade, they'll invest 40% more in research and development than the United States does by the end of this decade in that one year alone. So it, we, our national security is at risk. We are going to lose control of our own destiny if we don't begin investing much more aggressively in the industries of the future. And so the big lesson from this greatest economic experiment in history that we're living through now may very well be, and I hope it is, that we can easily afford to invest $10 trillion over the next 10 years since we've just managed to spend $6 trillion over a year and a half. It's uh, certainly, uh, certainly controversial, um, and uh, some economists would consider it heresy, but it, <laughs> who knows, who knows uh, you know, we're in completely uncharted territory now. So it, it's, uh, anything that sticks, I think, is, is probably the right thing to do. <laughs> Well, it's um, like heresy for the Austrian economist. Yeah. Uh, I consider myself an Austrian heretic yeah. because I, 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 do you know, I do believe that what Ludwig von Mises wrote in 1912 was certainly appropriate for 1912 when dollars were backed by gold. Yeah. If the government spent too much money and if the central banks created too much money, it led to high rates of inflation and was unsustainable and was damaging. Um, but that's not the world we live in anymore. But and what so is that, that, no, that orthodoxy is no longer appropriate for the age in which we live? I get the what you're saying. The sooner we get past that orthodoxy, the better off we're all going to be. Let me ask you this though, because this is, uh, and I, you know, I don't have any, uh, you know, any necessary any leanings one way or another. I just like listening and learning. But uh, isn't there a sort of a moral hazard to this, you know, idea that we can print forever? And it's not a big deal and there's no accountability. I mean, it, I mean, I, I, if there isn't, there isn't. But it, it's hard for me to believe that we can just continue to do that and not have any repercussions. Well, so I don't know if we can do this forever. You know, I'm not saying we can do this forever. I'm just saying let's do it for as long as we can. If yeah. we can do this, it's been 12 years since 2008. And has the roof, has the sky fallen? Has there been any cataclysm from... Uh, completely ignoring orthodox, economic orthodoxy. We haven't collapsed into the Austrian economic hell that they said was coming yeah. because we're living in a different economic environment now. So if we can do this for no, another 10 years and we can invest $10 trillion over the next 10 years in new industries and technologies, these investments will completely transform our economy. It will supercharge our economy. Um, it will... I mean, for instance, we could cure all the diseases with that sort of investment. And if we cure all the diseases, we expand life expectancy, if not just by years, but perhaps by decades. And that resolves all our worries about Social Security and Medicare going bankrupt. And also, it will secure our national security well into the future. So this is an opportunity. It won't last forever. Nothing lasts forever. But as long as it lasts, we need to grab it, grasp it, make the most of it, and not let it slip away. Let me ask you one last question on this, uh, which uh, has I've been thinking about because so far, uh, you know, 
monetary and fiscal policy has has worked um, to you know to a degree where you know despite the um, you know this seismic event that we've gone through, you know, things have been relatively controlled, right? And uh, is it possible? Is it possible, in your opinion, if, if, that we kind of just get through this without any significant, um, you know, major, um, you know, tsunami from from what's already happened? If we if we continue to just keep pumping money into the economy, in other words, is it to me? You know, my my initial thought on this whole thing has always been. I mean, there's just no way we can have a completely soft landing. In your opinion, could we have a soft landing? Well, look, the United States is an extremely rich country. Uh, and the size of the economy last year before the crisis started was roughly $21 trillion. And the, the government's debt relative to the size of the economy was something like 110% of GDP. So even if the government had to spend $21 trillion keeping our economy intact, that would double the size of the debt relative to the GDP. So then we would have government debt to GDP of something like 220%. That's less than Japan has now. Japan's government debt to GDP is 250%. So yes, the government, the US can spend as much money as necessary to keep our economy intact and to keep people in their homes and to keep people from falling into hunger uh, and Yes, there's no, I think we're not going to spend anywhere near $21 trillion. We may end up spending, you know, it could be 10. Uh, if it's 10, well, that's unfortunate, but so be it. That's just the price we'll have to pay because it, it's so much better than allowing the economy to implode because if the economy implodes, the debt, the debt is going to explode anyway because if the economy shrinks by 25 or 30% or more as it would without the government support, then tax revenues would collapse. And also the government spending on welfare payments and unemployment insurance would explode. So the deficit would become very much larger anyway. It's far better to spend the money keeping the economy intact. And then when the crisis is passed, the tax revenues will resume and the unemployment will fall back to very low, hopefully low levels again. So yeah, bottom line is you think it is possible, which is uh, which is interesting. And 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 as we move further down the down the road here, um, to me that's sort of the the thing that I would have really not uh, believed. But uh, as we as we you know as a, as the government keeps pitching in and the Fed keeps pitching in, it it seems to be more and more realistic that we could actually come out of this without too much too much more pain. So, um, Richard. Uh, I have been watching uh, the. Uh, I've been I've been a big fan of MacroWatch, the newsletter. Tell tell everybody about that again and remind us how we sign up. Well, great, thanks, Buck. So yes, MacroWatch is my video newsletter. Uh, it's, I I launched MacroWatch in 2013, so it's been going quite a long time now. And it, essentially, every couple of weeks, I upload a new video. Uh, it's, it's basically me doing a PowerPoint presentation on something important happening in the global economy and how that's likely to impact the stock prices, bond prices, commodities, currencies, commodities, interest rates, financial markets, in other words. Um, and so 
I hope your listeners will visit my website, which is, which is richardduncaneconomics.com, and take a look. And if they would like to subscribe, I'd like to offer them a 50% subscription discount. If they hit the subscribe button, when prompted, if they input the discount coupon code formula, they can subscribe at a 50% discount. The discount code is formula. And so then they'll get one new video every couple of weeks, and they'll also have immediate access to the MacroWatch archives, where there are more than, well more than 50 hours of MacroWatch videos, including four different courses on um, subjects like monetary policy and the, how the economy really works and China's economic crisis and capitalism in crisis. So I hope they'll check that out and at the very least sign up for my free blog there at richardduncaneconomics.com. Yeah, and I highly recommend it. And, and I'll tell you one of the things, uh, Richard, and I've been talking to Richard about is the fact that, you know, it's uh, especially in the investor world, um, we, we in, in the podcast sphere, we listen to different people uh, and, you know, their opinions, but it sure would be nice it, it, to, to have a better foundation um, to make your own decisions. Richard talked about, you know, Austrian economics and that sort of thing. But, you know, right now it's like you listen to a podcast, you listen to a speaker and, and you know, all you, all you get is their perspective. You don't really understand necessarily the, you know, the underlying um, concepts and, you know, your ability to agree or disagree with stuff. And one of the things I really like about Richard's, um, uh, his newsletter is not only the up-to-date stuff, but as he mentioned, there's this back content that gives you sort of your crash course in macroeconomics, at least, uh, you know, the functional stuff that we need uh, to listen to an interview like this or to listen to some of the others in the area, um, in the, in the podcast sphere and actually, you know, make it meaningful rather than somebody just telling you something that you don't have enough information to think about. So, um, so thanks again for Richard. I've really enjoyed that. And again, uh, uh, I highly recommend uh, that people check out that MacroWatch uh, newsletter. Buck, Buck, thanks. So it's really important that people understand how the economy works now. As I, as I was saying earlier, it doesn't work the way that it used to. Yep. The economic orthodoxy that was appropriate for the age when dollars were backed by gold is completely inappropriate for the world we live in. The economy works completely differently now than it did before. And so MacroWatch will teach you how the economy works now and the, and the financial implications of that. Richard, thanks so much for being on the show again. And I uh, would love to have you again uh, in the next... Uh, it's almost like the world's moving right now in dog years. So, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll say the next year or something like that, and it'll end up being in about three weeks. <laughs> but, well, hopefully the next time we speak, I hope it won't be long, and, and I hope the outlook will be much better at that point. Thanks, Richard. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, that was, uh, again, very interesting for me. And I could talk to Richard for a very, very long time. In fact, I, I feel like, you know, I, uh, it's hard for me to just, you know, try to keep it to a short period, uh, you know, that fits into a podcast. But, uh, but anyway, um, I will say it's, I think it's a uh, food for thought. So uh, I do recommend, again, that you consider joining his, uh, his, his newsletter. Uh, I think, uh, again, if you want to understand macro a little bit, 
he has a nice, you know, introductory section really talking about stuff. So if you're totally confused when you hear terms like the Fed's balance sheet and, you know, uh, uh, quantitative easing and things like that, and you want to understand, then definitely that's what you want to do is you want to go and um, check out uh, that uh, check out that video newsletter. And honestly, it's pretty cheap for the quality of work he does. So check it out. Also, especially with that uh, with that coupon code formula. The only thing I got to tell you this, uh, the one thing I'll just bring back to uh, end this podcast is the one the one thing I want you to understand is you know even though we live in this crazy Keynesian environment. I mean, I'm not saying it's the right path and I don't know what kind of, you know, what kind of reckoning is ahead. Maybe we figure out a way around it. I don't know. I'm not going to just say that there's guaranteed doom and gloom, but it sure does seem like this has to end at some point. Right. And I think Richard's point is uh, similar to what I was saying before, which is, Hey, we know right now we can keep doing the same thing, so let's just do it, right? I mean, the, the morphine is working, so let's just keep pumping it in until all of a sudden, um, you know, we have, we have trouble breathing, and then we'll figure out what to do at that point. So that's what he's saying. I, 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 you know, it, it's sort of a crazy uh, idea uh, because it is such a moral hazard, but what other choices do we have? As an investor, you have to just understand that is what's going to happen, right? We're not going to, we're, we're not, you know, a year away from the gold standard, right? I mean, if, if something, something significant happens, you know, uh, a global reset of the economy, it's going to be if, you know, these kinds of, uh, if and when these types of uh, interventions, these Keynesian government and, Fed, you know, Fed, interventions stop working. That's when you're going to see this kind of stuff, in my opinion. And I don't think that that's going to happen this time around. Anyway, that's it for me uh, this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, Consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.